Hello, welcome back to Portrait of an Editor. This is Francis Lombard. First, I need to apologize to Andy Curry for the delay of this podcast. We recorded it a while back, and somehow I managed to devise a number of excuses to delay releasing it. One good reason for taking my time on this is that I think Andy delivered a great interview that explains some of the core reasons for why I do this podcast. Over the course of three hours, he described what it was like for him to join DC Comics editorial staff. If you want to experience one person's journey as a comic book editor, this multi-part podcast and its addendums are precisely what you need. Enjoy. Andy, welcome to Portrait of an Editor. Going back to like your origin story as an editor, you started at Comics Alliance. And I've had other people come out of like Wizard, other people who became editors. They got their start in uh, reporting on comics, you know, either at Wizard, I think maybe somebody else at Comics Alliance. But I guess the first real big question I have for you is what is it about reporting on comics that leads to a career in editing? Is it, you know, a combination of a number of things of just being able, you know, showing that you can produce at a deadline or also the networking that occurs and just constantly meeting the, you know, you're meeting the people who are hiring and they get to know you in one way. How does that, how do you trans, you know, lay a reporting on comics and doing reviews to becoming the person who actually makes the stuff? Well, there are transferable skills like you uh, alluded to in your question. Um, I would say in retrospect, the most important element of it is the networking because when you cover comics, I wouldn't say as a reviewer necessarily comics criticism is not necessarily what gets you into editorial, but I think it helps develop those critical thinking skills. But at comics Alliance, I was one of the editors of the site. I wasn't strictly a comics reporter or critic. I did some of that, but I mostly put together a team and managed a team uh, along with the other editors of the site who were Laura Hudson and, and Caleb Goldner and later Andrew Wheeler and later Janelle Aslan, who was a former DC editor herself. For me, anyway, the most transferable skill was just the way you have to think about comics and think about storytelling because when you find yourself in a position where you have to generate a lot of content about comics and about comic book storytelling and about comic book fandom and about comic book creators and the sort of culture around comics, you think a lot about comics and, and uh, do a lot of you know, processing about comics and you find yourself talking to a lot of people who work in comics and studying comics and studying how, what comics mean to you and mean to other people. And, and, uh, you just sort of can't help, but because you just have to do it, you know, cause you have to, the, the internet deadlines are far more punishing than the comic book deadlines. And, uh, you sort of find yourself in like, you know how like Tom Strong was like, you know, raised in that like gravity pod where, where, uh, it was, he, he had to like, you know, grow up in, in with like 17 times Earth's gravity or something. So that when mm-hmm. he came out, he was like, you know, uh, he could do everything like at a higher level of efficiency. Yeah. <laughs> like that's kind of what it was like. 
I would never go back to doing that kind of work because it was so stressful and so difficult, which is not to say that making, making comics is not stressful and difficult, but it was, it was, uh, just a whole other level of, of, uh, anxiety and, and pressure. And, uh, when DC moved out to the LA was when the idea of me becoming a comic book editor became sort of something I had considered for the first time. It was not, you know, I, I know, I know that there is a history of people from the comics press becoming comic book, uh, editors. I mean, Paul Levitz did that himself too. Um, but it was not something that I ever sort of aspired to in an active way. I thought, Oh, that'd be cool. Cause people had told me before, Oh, you'd probably make a good comic book editor. And I'd say, yeah, I think maybe I could do a good job at that, but I was never going to move to New York to do that. I was never something I was going to pursue until they moved out here. And it, as it turned out, yes, those skills are transferable. Um, especially if you're sort of in a supervisory position, which I was at comics Alliance where I could say, here's a bunch of things I put together and, and, and spearheaded or wrangled. And, and also here's like a Rolodex I have, you know, that maybe that DC at the time maybe didn't have. And, uh, you know, there's, that's kind of how that happened. I, I, you know, very simply applied and, uh, you know, people there knew who I was, and uh, some people were excited about the idea of me coming on board. Some people were not, and uh, just you know, it turned out I got the job, and uh, it ended up being extremely great job. So, I mean, you said off before we started recording that you're a friend of Alex Antone. So, mm-hmm. if anybody wants to listen to his story about how he got his job at DC, it sounds like it's very different than yours. I mean, he sort of started as, I think if I remember correctly, as an intern and just moved up and and then he came back and then he was sort of on a, wasn't working in D.C. general, but you applied, what job did you apply for? Because it sounds like you hit the ground running, but what job did you apply for first? Well, I, yeah, uh, Alex started out, I think, as an intern when he was sort of college years. Mm-hmm. You know, I applied for what we call like an editor, editor. Cause in, at DC there's assistant editor, associate editor, editor, senior editor and group editor, and then the executive editor. Uh, they had an open position for an editor mm-hmm. and I was already 35 years old or no, 34 years old when I applied for that and had a lot of experience in, you know, professional entertainment media by that point. Cause comics Alliance was part of, Huffington Post. It was part of AOL before that. It was, you know, I'd had a lot of experience doing a lot of, you know, uh, stuff in, in entertainment media for, for not just comics, but, you know, film and television coverage and, and things like that. And, uh, so I had, you know, enough experience under my belt to, to credibly apply for the editor position. And, uh, I was, you know, I interviewed with, with Bob Harris at the time and, uh, my eventual boss, Brian Cunningham, who was a group editor at the time. Yep. Which and, I've, yeah, I've had Brian and, here <laughs> and just got the job that way. But yeah, it was very different than Alex. I started much later than he did in his, in my comics career. Alex worked his way up from, uh, and I think he was at Wildstorm, uh, down in San Diego. And, uh, you know, before the, the, the companies were completely amalgamated to, 
And there's still a lot of people at DC who were from that original Wildstorm office, um, including notably Jessica Chen, who's an editor at DC right now, who does <laughs> Nightwing, among other very, very good books. Um, and she started out, I think, in production at Wildstorm. So the, the way I came in maybe is not the most typical way. There are a lot of editors who start as assistant editors or in other departments or even as executive assistants and things like that who work their way up. But I was a little bit older than than uh, my class of editor at DC during my time there. And there was that job opening that I just happened to be qualified for and, and got it. So, yeah, I sort of skipped over those the more traditional uh up the ladder kind of thing. But while you're at a senior editor at comics Alliance, you obviously proved that you could handle, you know, overseeing numerous projects, delivering on deadlines, delivering content of your own, but also, you know, shepherding people as an editor. I mean, you were doing, but it was just, you were the reporting, you were doing the reporting, you were making sure things were arriving and, and also assigning stuff and tracking, you know, deadlines for other people and everything, you know, was that all those part of your job at Comics Alliance? Yeah. Okay. For, for sure. And, um, you know, you have to, it, I, I don't really know the, the content. When I say content, I mean like the sites that do movie news and, and comics news and game news. Like I don't really, it's been a long time since I've done that work, but at the time, mm-hmm. so I don't, I can't swear to like how it works now, but at the time it was a real punishing, uh, schedule. You had to have a lot of posts per day and, uh, with a lot of social media integration and promotion. And it was, uh, it was very, very difficult work. It's like, I think it's still the same. It's sort of like just this fire hose of information that, you know, as you know, the old joke of like a shark having to keep swimming, basically, you know, you're and but this, I think a lot of this stuff now you're on a, a sprint, a, like a, a marathon sprint of just, just getting new content out there to get clicks and stuff like that. That was pretty much what it was. When did you, when did you leave Comics Alliance? Like 2015? The DC opportunity presented itself, um, I think, in late 2014. And, uh, and I was ready to step down from Comics Alliance anyway, for the reasons I explained. Um, the Comics Alliance also was, I think... A, established itself by that point as a voice with a point of view. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was also something that was important to everybody there. And that probably also was a calling card for me at DC. When the DC opportunity came up, I, I had, I told my comics Alliance staff, I am interested in this. I'm not going to oversee in the interest of, of sort of, you know, um, of conflict. I'm, I'm going to not involve myself in any DC coverage going forward because I'm going to begin having conversations with people there about maybe coming on board. It was a long process, but I did not begin my first day at work at DC until March, 2015. Speaking of Alex Antone, he, I think if I'm remembering correctly, was the person who told me I actually got the job. He DM'd me on Twitter and said, Hey, are you coming to work here? Because 
they just put your name on the desk next to mine. That first day was in New York City while they were still there because the first thing I had to do was attend a creative summit for some books that I'd been involved with. So they offered me the job. I flew out. I went to a meeting in the morning. And then during lunch, I'd walk across the street to the Time Warner building and do my paperwork (laughs) and then came back to the office. So they were packing out New York while I was there. So my first week at DC Comics was actually in their New York office, not the L.A. office, Mm -hmm. even though I lived in L.A. Now, do they have you do tests? Because we've talked about that with other editors about getting hired, that um, it's not like, oh, great, you know, we know who you are, come on over, and here's a bunch of comic books to edit. I mean, do they look, you know, they, they saw what you were producing in Comics Alliance, they could see it from the outside, but they have you, like, break down a script, do a test on a script, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Was there, what was sort of the process of getting that job once they, you know, I guess zeroed in on you? What I remember was a lot of conversations with Brian Cunningham about sort of our philosophy about storytelling Mm -hmm. and about DC storytelling in particular, what DC meant to us and what I thought DC Comics should be like in 2015, which was when it happened. And Brian also showed me a bunch of pitches or story overviews of the coming slate that I would be getting. My, the timing was very good for me because typically what happens is editors get handed a bunch of books that are in progress, and they were just about to start a new sort of marketing push where there were going to be a lot of new number ones. So I was able to get it on the ground floor of all those new number ones. And, uh, so I was able to, to, to begin sort of, um, over oversight of those titles right away. And he gave me a bunch of documents explaining what those books were going to be. And, uh, one of them was the Omega men by Tom King. And that was something I said, I really, really want to do this book. Originally, uh, that wasn't in his Brian's idea for me to to do that book, but I said I really want to do this book, and so really it was more conversations about comics and, and talking about the books and talking about the projects. There wasn't a formal test as such. Um, it was just like let's let's talk about these things and see where our views overlap and our tastes overlap. And there were many conversations about it for months before I actually got the offer. Like it. There was, I had a very long meeting with, with Bob Harris when he came out to LA. When I say long, I mean like, like hours long. Like there was, they don't, they don't give you like a sample script or something to, to, to break down and give notes on. It's, it's, uh, cause I, as I've said, uh, to people when they ask me about these like sort of editor skills and things like that, like you'll, you'll get that as you go. Like you'll figure out the best way to do those things as you jump in. It's really more about. Are you the sort of person who can who can do this job and adapt quickly to, you know, changes on the ground and and conditions on the ground rather? And uh, are you the sort of person who has like a a point of view that fits in with the with the goals of uh, the staff and the goals of your immediate boss? And you know, are do you guys get along? It was it was very formal while also being very informal. 
they ask you about continuity? Did you know, did they ask you about your wealth of knowledge about, you know, certain, the continuity that's gone on throughout the DC universe? Did you have to know, you know, what occurred after crisis or what was going on before crisis or name all the super pets and, and stuff like that, or the, all the members of the Legion of Superheroes or you know, of like your wealth of knowledge of DC continuity, because at times there's that whole element of the DC tries to stay with of continuity and making, especially their main line of stuff. Did you, or was that something like you were just saying, sort of you would learn as you go. And there were other people there that knew this stuff and that was their job to know it. I wasn't asked that as like part of a questionnaire or anything (laughs) like that, but it, I mean, it came up as you talk about Mm -hmm. like, you know, you, you have lunch with a prospective employer and you talk about your favorite comics and your, and especially at DC, your, your history with DC comics, you know, his DC, I think, I think everybody who's an editor at DC, almost everybody anyway, has a long history with DC, you know, material, uh, going back to their childhood. And I was no exception. And I, I, uh, I talked about, you know, how, uh, how DC comic books were, you know, a part of my life. And, and I think through those types of conversations, it becomes obvious what continuity stuff and what eras are, are def- definitive for you, you know? And, uh, so that was, that was known to Brian and Bob, you know, before I was given the official offer, but it wasn't like a, uh, it wasn't like a quiz that would have been fun. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I am. I am of the generation who's a you know. I grew up in the post-crisis DC era, for sure. And the '90s, particularly, were were my the early '90s were my sweet spot where I was where I became sort of a DC guy, DC kid, and uh, where the most formative DC comics for me came out. Yeah. And so you they knew that like that that comes up in conversation, and I would say things like, "Oh, I, I love this." this creator or this take. And I, 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 you know, I would love to, to, uh, to invoke this, you know, or, or, uh, or use this as a basis to build something new on, you know, cause at the time I came to DC, they had just wound down the new 52 branding. Yeah. I know I never had a DC book that said the new 52 on the cover. It was, I, all my books started right when they decided to stop doing that. So it was sort of an exciting time where there was a lot of feeling around to see what the next vibe was going to be, if if you like, because there wasn't really a, you know, specific plan in terms of like, this is what the line's going to look like and feel like. And, and with respect to continuity or aesthetics or anything like that, it was there was room to play, especially uh, with the book's that I was assigned because uh, I was assigned sort of lower tier or mid tier books that are kind of a sweet spot, depending on the kind of editor you are. I like, I like doing those because there's a lot more um, room to play there because if you're, and this goes for any, I think corporate job is if you're on, if you're working on a project that is a lot of eyeballs on it, you're going to get a lot of scrutiny mm-hmm. and that mean that's goes both ways. If it's really, really popular or really unpopular, <laughs> but if you're right in the middle, you get to do kind of fun, weird stuff. 
like uh, like Omega Men, you know. Well, that was one thing. Like Alex calling back Alex's interview too. We spent a lot of time talking about how he liked being, you know, on the second tier with Titans and some other books that he had that you, you seem to get away with things a little, or the scrutiny wasn't there. So you could have some fun. You could, you know, there was a and do things or change characters or just what it just seemed like you had a little more wiggle room to try things out. And I think it sounds like you, that's a sweet spot for you too. Is Absolutely. That. Particularly in that era of DC, it's mm-hmm. very different now because management has changed yeah. since Alex and I were there. Uh, there was a, you know, at the time that, that we were there, there was a, there was a lot of second guessing because basically like, candidly, you know, uh, sometimes you could run afoul of the vision of the, of the bosses, you know, on a book. And sometimes that vision was, was not well articulated and sometimes it was. And, but on a book that was sort of mid tier, you wouldn't get too much, you know, too much of that. You would, you, you were able to do the book, the best version of the book that you believed in, you know, mm-hmm. and that was a great, that was a great, uh, place to be, which is not to say that the, that the other books were not great books or their people couldn't, you know, do what they wanted to do. I mean, I, I wouldn't really know honestly, but I, I do know that the mid tier books got, did get less scrutiny than when I say scrutiny, I don't mean quality assurance. Cause I mean, I'm, uh, you, that's something that has to happen and you want things to happen like that. But just less sort of, um, I suppose, I'm not sure what the right word would be, but. Would it be uh, like, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't have a crossover or the, you know, the seasonal crossover start in one of your books unless, you know, you just, you would be asked to the party later in the game kind of thing that you might have to throw whatever plans you have up, you know, put any plans on hold or, or I don't know. It just, I'm not talking about the quality, you know, the, the, the quality of the books at all. It just seems just a little more creative freedom in a way. I think you did have more creative freedom or at least I did. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I know when I'm during my time at DC, creative freedom was not, you know, uh, a problem for me. Like I felt very creatively, uh, free to do quite a lot of stuff on my DC books. Um, other editors on other books have might have different experiences. Just it just depends on your book, and it depends on your whether your book was was uh, you know how 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 really it's just how the bosses like considered your book and considered considered its role in the line and you know it's it's I'm not trying to be coy or or, or evasive. It's it's just sort of hard to explain if if you're not there. You know, it's an interesting time back then because uh, as it's been reported in the last few months or maybe a couple months back about what happened with 52 is that it started off really hot. I think that there was a vision at the beginning. And then once the, in the book started hitting stores and getting reaction, um, me as a fan, I was like interested. I'm like, okay, there's a lot of jumping on points. And I'm at the end of the day, I'm pretty much a DC guy. I think I went over to Marvel for a little while and then, came back and DC seems to be the only like superhero publisher I'm, I really track nowadays. 
I was looking forward to, you know, 52 seemed like an interesting thing. And some of the books were the combination of characters or bringing back characters or takes on characters seemed to energize. They energized me. I was like, whoa, I can't read all these. (laughs) You know, there was so much. Um, But then the reporting that I've read is that it sort of, they lost hold of the threads. Um, And in 2015, when you came on board, it seemed like, what do we do next? You know, because with some of the people I've talked to over the years about superhero publishing, you need to have an event. You need to have a re, I think uh, Dan DiDio even said it every six years, you need to redo these characters. You need, and around that time, it was probably a little earlier than they expected, but it seemed like it was time for another, I mean, I don't know, jolt of energy into these characters I mean tell me if I'm I don't know what do you was it that period where they were like what do we do now after 52 has sort of done its thing run its course it's hard for me to say exactly because I wasn't part of the new 52 yeah uh, team I came in sort of in the aftermath and as I said the books I did my first books to come out the gate didn't have the new 52 branding on it. It was sort of a, what, what were those books? The first books I did were, I mean, they were part of, if you remember the marketing for those books was DC, you And those included Omega men, Rob Williams, Martian Manhunter book, the Constantine book with James Tynion and Riley Rosmo and Ming Doyle, the Dr. Fate by Paul Levitz and Sonny Lou. If you remember the Dr. Fate with yep. the hoodie, you yep. know, um, well, those were really shaking up the characters. I mean, especially the Dr. Fate, but Omega men for you was, I mean, very political. It was sort of a really, you know, as if you've read it, I, I read it a while back and it, you know, King was really trying to ask about, you know, what is a, I guess a rebel or, you know, what is, you know, where did the, the politics and social aspects of overthrowing the status quo, if I remember correctly, of what the Omega men were all about and what they were doing. I mean, there's some deep thinking and deep thematic stuff happening in Omega men. Am I getting, am I remembering that correctly? No, I mean, that's, (laughs) it was definitely a kind of a reinvention of of that concept, which is Uh something I like to, to work on at DC is when you take something that's, when there's, it, there's a lot of fun you can have when there's really no prevailing characterization of something or somebody. Yeah. You know, like there was an original Omega Man book, but I don't know that it was, you know, embraced it, to, the, to, the, to the degree that there's like a canon as such. You no, know? The, that book, I remember reading it. I was an Omega Man fan. I think they appeared in the Titans. But I, I, I don't even know if I could tell you. It's been so long. And then they got spun off. Uh, to their own series and um, Keith Giffen was the artist for like the first six issues and that's when Lobo was first introduced mm-hmm. and but it never really took off it yeah after they spun out I think there were great supporting characters and at the beginning people were really curious about them but the series never really you know really um, you know had hardcore fans of and, and support and I, I think they would come back every so often but they never really you know had a successful, you know, a huge long run of, you know, of continuity and stuff. So it, you know, what, what you guys were trying to do with the Omega, what you were doing with the Omega men is, um, was great. It was great. Thank you. Uh, 
yeah, like those, those are the kinds of things that are really fun to do because as I said, there's no like prevailing vision of the Omega man in fandoms imagination. Mm-hmm. So you can, you have a freedom to sort of propose a new one and people will, will accept it or they won't, you know, that's fun to do for sure. Uh, but to answer your question about what's the new jolt at DC, that was really rebirth. And, uh, you know, I was definitely there for that from the beginning. And, uh, that was in my view, a restorative exercise because, uh, the new 52 had, you know, in some ways been destructive to, uh, some of the concepts and characters and uh, there was, there was an opportunity with rebirth to restore some things that people missed about these characters that were familiar about the characters and also just sort of aesthetically uh, make the line feel modern. You know, the look of the comics, the design of the comics, the, the uh, just the sort of tone, you know, the trick when you're doing DC comics, and I, I'm sure it's the same for Marvel comics, is how do you make things feel both new and familiar? Yeah. You know, the the sort of crass metaphor I've always used for what we do as superhero comic storytellers is it's it's a lot like fast food. Like <laughs> if you if you go to McDonald's you know what's on the menu, you know what you like, and you know it's always going to taste the same. Now, sometimes they'll have something sort of exotic and new that you'll try out, you know, and you might like it, and you might add that to your sort of rotation of things that you get when you go to that restaurant. But if you show up one day and everything's completely different, uh, you're probably just going to be like, well, I'm not going to buy any of this because it's not good for me (laughs) anyway. So... Uh, I, I, I saw rebirth as a, as an effort to sort of rebalance things. Cause I think things had become, the menu had become very foreign, I think, in my opinion, you know, uh, which is not to say that the new 52 was, I, there was, there were a lot of good books in the 52 and a lot of good work was done, but I, I do think that rebirth was needed to sort of, to, to make a version of the DC universe that was more familiar and I think if you read the DC Universe Rebirth book that Jeff Johns wrote, you will see that in a pretty explicit way. Yeah. And so I think it's fair to say that. And that was the most fun time for me as a DC editor was feeling empowered by Jeff to, for example, I was doing the Green Arrow book and we could have Green Arrow and Black Canary together. We were not, you know, allowed to do that for many years. And that is a core relationship between two characters that you know readers really responded to for many decades and it was just somebody's decision that they couldn't do that i disagreed with that decision and i was glad to be able to reverse it and that's the end of part one of my interview with andy curry as a bonus here's the first addendum i really couldn't find a spot to drop it in during the main conversation but i also thought it was great information regarding andy curry's career one of the biggest changes in the comic book industry was DC Comics' move to Los Angeles. In this addendum, Andy details what it was like to start at DC during that time, the people he first met, 
and how it all led to him co-editing the recent Batman Black and White. I had mentioned it taken a long time for the process. Alex, along with Jessica Chen and some other Southern California-based editors and staff, were sort of a skeleton crew at the L.A. office before the move from New York was completed. And I spent my early weeks at the company with them, and uh, they remain good friends now. And that was a really interesting time at the company for me because the first person I saw when I walked in to the L.A. office was Jeff Johns, who I'd known just from, you know, being in the business. And he showed me to my desk because I didn't know where to go because my bosses, my immediate supervisors, Brian Cunningham and Bob Harris, weren't there yet. They were still in New York. So I was sort of a, a satellite editor for my group. Uh, the, the other editors of my group were still on the East Coast. But I was really, really fortunate because some very key people in my life happened to be in the building uh, at that time. And one of them is Mike Carlin, who most of your listeners probably know was the executive editor, basically, i.e. editor-in-chief of DC Comics for many years in the 1990s, and who was the group editor of the Superman books during the classic Superman stories of the 90s that everyone knows, the death of Superman, the reign of the Superman. Just a really important figure in the history of DC Comics. He, by this point, this would be 2015, early 2015, was the uh, no longer in the publishing arm. He was the creative director of animation. I believe that's still his job. In uh, sort of what was then called, maybe still called, creative affairs, which is the sort of media oversight uh, division of the company. He works with Warner Brothers Animation on all the DC things that you see and has for many years. And uh, he is such a great, great guy who used to just on his own walk up to editorial. We were on the third floor and just sort of walk around and just say, hey, how's it going, everybody? Like, making himself available to a lot of us younger people. And I really availed myself of him. He has given me so much great advice on the job and, you know, navigating the, the industry and storytelling advice and also just anecdotes and stories from the past about creators who I have grown up reading and, and, uh, just always approachable. I, you know, many, many, many times over the years, I'd go down to Mike's office, just knock on the door and, you know, come inside and put my feet up and just ask him to tell me sort of war stories or I'd tell him what's going on. Or if I was, you know, working on a story for one of my books and uh, I, I wanted to, you know, pitch it to him, see what he says. Uh, he was always available for that. And that is so invaluable, especially to someone, I think, of my generation. Um, And, you know, maybe me especially because of my history with DC, which is pretty involved in a a kind of spiritual way because uh, I... You mentioned I was an L.A. native, and that's true, but uh, I only lived... In, I was born here in America, but I only lived here for a couple of years before my family moved overseas. And I grew up 
mainly in Southeast Asia. And uh, I didn't live in the U.S. until I was already uh, a 10th or 11th grader. And during the time I was overseas, what are sometimes called expatriates or third culture children, which is like a, something my mom says because she read it in Newsweek or something at the time, uh, you feel sort of uh, disconnected from your sort of motherland, I suppose. And a lot of uh, American kids in that situation sort of gravitate to the pop culture of the U.S. in a way that is sort of like grasping for some sort of connection because you just sort of feel like you've missed a class everybody else took and you're behind. So I grasped early to uh, American comic books because they were something that felt American and um, sort of quintessential and, you know, getting into them made me feel like, you know, more American, if you will. And uh, so, you know, one of the first comics I could remember buying was on in a newsstand in Singapore. It was uh, a John Byrne Superman comic. And uh, I still remember the exact one. And it was a cliffhanger. And I've, I never found out what happened for another 25 years. But, uh, you know, DC Comics was a big part of my sort of, you know, American identity. Uh, and when I moved to the U.S. eventually, the comic book community and the comic book scene and fandom was where I found a home, you know, socially and culturally. And, you know... I still have really close friends who I met in that sort of nascent internet community that built up around comics and DC Comics specifically. Of course, Mike Carlin's output was a big part of, of uh, what you know drew me into that art form and those characters. And um, another person whose work was huge for me was Mark Chiarello, who I was really lucky also still happened to be at DC Comics when I got there. He had made the move from New York, which I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know if he was still there or not. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of who was coming and going during that move. There was a huge turnover in staff, which is why I, you know, had an opportunity to interview in the first place. But, uh, you know, when I got there, I found out, oh, Mark Chiarello is in the building. And um, his work is, is so important to me. And um, not just his work as an editor, but also as an artist and designer. And, um, you know, at my workspace, I had a vintage promo poster of Terminal City, the Vertigo uh, limited series that he did covers for, the Dean Motter, Michael Lark miniseries that some of your listeners might remember. And, you know, Chiarello did, of course, Batman Black and White, which was a massive, massive influence on me. And uh, so I was able to introduce myself to Mark when I got there and uh, not embarrass myself too much and basically try to force my way into his professional life as a kind of uh, ersatz protege. I, I, I wouldn't presume to call myself a protege, but I definitely wanted to be a, a Chiarello protege. And uh, he's someone who now I, you know, am very honored to call a friend. And um, <clears throat> I was, of course, really, really unhappy when he left the company. The Batman Black and White miniseries that we did after that between... 2020 and 2021 was uh, 
edited by myself and Ben Abernathy and Dave Wilgosh. I was I was involved with that basically by their grace. I, I knew they were developing a new Batman black and white um, and I really wanted to be involved. And I just, you know, went to, to, to Ben, who is the group editor. It is the group editor of the Batman line. I told him what, you know, the book meant to me. And I, I told him a little bit about what I just told you about, you know, the way I grew up and my connection to DC and, and to the work of Mark. And he was extremely gracious. And he and Dave allowed me to come on. And I, you know, the, between the three of us, we kind of edited a third each of that six-issue miniseries, which I think I can safely speak for them. You know that, that it was very important to them to to honor the legacy of what Mark had invented with this anthology, which has always been to kind of spotlight the vanguard of comics at the moment it's coming out. You know, Mark's original one was, I think, very much the vanguard of comics in the '80s and '90s up to that point, and Mark did another uh, miniseries. <laughs> several years later and we did ours about seven or eight years after that which I think um, when you look at the roster of people you know we tried to be ambitious and uh, make a statement about who are the cutting edge artists of, of this moment as well as people who were sort of just you know some oversights of the past I think we realized that uh some people had, had, hadn't been in previous black and white, uh, Batman black and whites who should have been, and we, we made sure to take care of them uh, there as well. But uh, that was definitely a career highlight for me and uh, a great honor to be allowed to honor Mark uh, with that work. And, uh, you know, and it was, it was ner- I was very nervous telling him, oh, so um, we're doing this, and... Uh, he was very, very supportive, and um, you know, I he he also gave me some feedback later about he he'd read it, and uh, that was that was great to hear that he'd read it, and he gave me you know the stuff he liked and didn't like, and that's that's great too because it's uh, there's certain people who you just respect so much that even getting criticized by them is sort of a you know it, you feel like oh wow like I'm even like in a situation where I can be criticized by this extremely talented and influential person. 